millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. I'm sure at this stage of the week you can hardly move for Roy Keane quotes piling up around you, piling high after Keane gave his first press conference yesterday. Now we brought out Setting Captain's Football a day early to get you the best bits straight away, so we're not going to invade your personal space any further at this stage, except, Ken, to point out that when it comes to media analysis, we have a pretty sharp tool sitting here. That tool's name is Kieran Murphy. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, well, thank you for that uh, glowing reference. You there. asked Alex Ferguson, you asked Roy Keane, I should say, about Alex Ferguson's comments in the book yeah. yesterday. Keane, I thought... Alex Ferguson's portrayal of him. Yeah. yeah. I thought Keane answered it reasonably well and was fairly non-confrontational, but Murph said, yeah, but what the media will do is they'll use that word lies, which yeah. was mentioned a couple of times, and they'll blow it up, and it'll seem as though Keane had a massive go at Ferguson. Lo and behold, we're reading all the papers today. Mm. Now, Lar- no. largely the UK media, must yeah, be said. Yeah, well, it is. Yeah. It, oh, no, it is. Completely. I even said it was going to be the UK media. Yeah, yeah, Karen, now, Karen it's not like it. I'm, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm the Nate Silver of the uh, the UK and Ireland media market. No, don't never let's, say that. Let's, let's be frank here. I don't think it was the greatest shot in the dark anyone's ever got with on. But I'm happy to take the comments, because usually all I get here is abuse. So hopefully... What sort of headlines are we getting? respect me. Um, Sorry, I was still talking there, on. Oh, forget it. It's fine, on. <laughs> Uh, just, uh, I saw that the the Guardian, um, their story online certainly referred to or had lies in quotes because really, that's the thing. That's the only thing you can because because well, was just the Guardian. Vague. There were a few. Oh, there were. Yeah. There, oh, there were. Yeah, no, the, the Mail as well. The, well, it's it's kind of interesting the way it worked. The Telegraph, yes, lies again in quotes. Just this one word. The Daily Mail also had a story uh, which quoted lies in the headline. Um, but I noticed that the Daily Mail story wasn't written by their man who covers the Ireland team. He was there, who was Colin Young, a very good journalist, yeah. who who had written a, an entirely different, more, you know, kind of a balanced measure piece. It was written by somebody else. I'm not sure whether this other person was there, whether they were just doing it, you know, off, mm. the, off the quotes and so on. Um, but there's always that, there's kind of that separation between, um, here's the... The guy the who's there a little and bit of negative spin, and here's the story. Here's the story by the guy who actually has to be in the same room as Roy Keane, uh, you know, at varying points over the next two years. But yeah, I mean, the thing is that everybody had to just put that in quotes, lies, because he was quite vague in what he said. I mean, he didn't actually say 
Alex Ferguson's lies. He talked about when you know people tell lies about me. That's when I'll defend myself, and people could draw their own conclusion as to what that meant. But yeah, um, the Times though did have their own guy there who's an, another guy who regularly covers Ireland, and no mention of lies. Uh, talk of Keane's charm, his intelligence, and working with Martin O'Neill. Joe Schmidt said that Ireland needed a wake-up call after last week's 40 points to 9 victory over Samoa. He's delivered it by making six changes to his team, four of them fairly straightforward, but Redden in for Murray and Luke Marshall for Gordon Darcy are the big calls. And Dave Carney, who scored two tries in his debut, got the biggest wake-up call by being dropped from the squad altogether. Mm. Two tries not enough when you make some handling er errors? Well, yeah, I'm sure Dave himself would have told you that, you know, it was a bit of a mixed bag last week. Uh, Two tries, Murph. I'm all about the bottom line when it comes to... (sighs) Sport. I mean, it's just such a narrow view. You know, it's such a narrow a world view you have there on. Um, you need to just... He also looked great. Effort. And he did. looked tremendous. I was getting a lot of messages on Twitter saying that, you know, dust down the old carnometer because it looks like Dave has finally got one over on Rob. It was a beautiful moment. Rob delivered the first pass to him, Ken. Mm-hmm. Debut, Dave Kearney, brother, little brother. Give him the ball. He'll finish it very, very well in the bottom corner. Bottom corner? Yeah. Well, Bottom of the screen as I looked at it. If, 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 <laughs> if this was the GA, of course, Rob Cardi would have walked out of the Ireland camp in disgust at the harsh treatment of his <laughs> yeah, brother. Yeah. There are a lot of inter-county retirements based on a brother not a getting brother. Well, I mean, in, in club football, it's basically the whole thing is, let's try and make sure that the crap brother, the fourth brother, yeah. is picked just so that the other three good lads don't you know, stage a walkout. So what kind of brother is Rob Kearney? I mean, does he even like his own brother? Sporting brother? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Rob has, Rob has, Dave is going to be Rob's brother for the rest of his life. He's only going to be playing rugby for Ireland for another couple of years. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a disgrace that Rob Cardi hasn't right. walked but, out of the Ireland. Well, look, you know, Ro- it's, it's Dave, maybe Dave is that kind of brother. You know, that sort of uh, thing that gets circulated around, and it's usually uh, Cristiano Ronaldo or, or Lionel Messi or, uh, I don't know, some, pick, a, pick a good player at random, and then it's a story about how they were on trial. And uh, there's another player there with them. Yeah. And the idea is that they have to the score a hat-trick or they have to score. It's like the next the player who scores more goals is going to get the trial. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, it's the last one of the game. They both have two goals, you know. And then they're both running through. Ronaldo, Ronaldo's in the centre and his, his teammate is on the outside. But the teammate goes past two and then goes past the keeper and has a tap-in. But then passes to Ronaldo, who taps in. And Ronaldo gets the trial, I've, and then I've everybody read a lot says of unbelievable things. On and the then that is the and most Ronaldo, unbelievable thing. Ronaldo says to the teammate, "Why did you do that? Why did you pass me the ball?" You realise that we came to a fork in the road in life. There, my life now leads to Manchester United, Real Madrid, fame, riches. You, the scrap heap. And he said, "Because you're better than me." And uh, and he sort of squeezed his uh, <laughs> arm a bit like Tom Hanks in, in Saving yeah. Private Ryan or whatever. You know, <laughs> earn this, yeah, earn this. Now the story is untrue. Yeah, no, well. no human being would do that. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, but but maybe Dave Carney is a little brother, a bit like that. Sort yeah. of go for it, Rob, because you're better. You're than slightly me. more attractive and slightly better at rugby. Can than I me? make the point? I don't just, know. About I that. just want to be clear on something. Because Murph was using general terms there. Uh, talking about the crap brothers. we just like to be clear, just in case any headlines are taken out of context here, that second captain of the Irish Times, and I'm going to speak on Kieran Murphy's behalf, is not calling Dave Carney no, I'm the crap Carney. You're talking about a more general sense. Yeah, and, the, the yeah. five brothers, six brothers that I've played with many, many times. There's always there's often, one, there's there's often always, a crap well, who yeah, barely plays the sport. We're yeah. going to talk about the, the, that team selection and reflect on the 2003 match between the two countries with Eddie O'Sullivan and... Shag Hogan. Who were both involved that day. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? Shag Hogan. It's Matt oh, Williams. Matt Williams. Describing. Shag Hogan. Not even Shaggy. It's been 
abbreviated shag. again, like all good nicknames. It'll just be S at the end. Yeah, Shag. Go shag Horgan. There's P. Bezo coming up. There is indeed. Ireland Latvia chat. And also we're going to talk to US Murph about Candlestick Park, the home ground of the San Francisco 49ers. Why yep. is this interesting? Well, San Francisco 49ers at the moment, and also for a long number of years, the San Francisco Giants have built as a baseball stadium, uh, first of all. But yeah, it's being knocked down at the end of next month. So uh, it's the only, it's it's the most seen football ground on Monday Night Football ever. It's the only ground to have held uh, 3,000 uh, Major League Baseball games and 1,000 uh, NFL games. And it's got, it's the last really charming old stadium in the NFL because every other team basically has these 80,000 seater huge yeah, big and it's closing down. stadium. And yes, it's getting uh, demolished. I hear it's a bit of a kip up. as well though. Yeah. I, so we I, might talk to Brian about exactly, his Exactly. I wonder how much, in the intersection of it's a total kip but I love it. That whole graph. Where does Brian Murphy kind of join the line it's there? It's a kip, but it's our kip, that kind of... Yeah, of like the old Land's End Road. Uh, we're going to start, though, by talking to Eddie O'Sullivan and Shane Horgan, who are ready to go. Joe Schmidt, Shane, is. I, I know you were saying last Thursday in the show that it's not going to matter. Reputations don't count. Tradition doesn't matter. Outside influence isn't going to have any impact on how Joe Schmidt picks his team. And it certainly seems that's, it seems that's been borne out this week. It's an interesting selection. It is, yeah. Um, I maybe saw Marshall coming in a little bit. I just had a feeling um, because he wasn't—he didn't use him in the first game at all. Um, he hadn't done much wrong since he was selected before. And I think we probably, no matter what Gordon Darcy had done uh, last week, I think he would have plumped uh, for Marshall. And I think Darcy had some really good touches, especially for the, for the try at the end. And it's a tough call on him. And, and uh, But I, I think you know Joe is, is probably going to look to Marshall for, for a longer term. Big surprise though, really is 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 Madigan. Um, uh, uh, sorry, is um, Redden. Redden coming in? Yeah. Redden coming in for for um, Murray. Very good tour with the Lions. Didn't play particularly well at the weekend. Redden made a difference when he came on, speeded up the tempo, got the ball to the ten faster. Um, things do break up in the last twenty minutes anyway, but you know Redden really took his opportunity, and I suppose to a lesser degree then. You look at uh, Toner coming in uh, for uh, McCarthy. McCarthy didn't have a great game. Toner's done well this season, but traditionally wouldn't be seen as a guy who'd uh, you'd go to the to the uh, to the wall with. And I think maybe they're looking at having a very very strong line, and that's what they're going to have. Um, the set piece might be the way that Ireland are going to go. Uh, a strong scrum with uh, best, but I think maybe Toner limits the strength of the scrum a little bit. McCarthy's a very very good scrummager. Um, but uh, you know Smith is it's, he's going his own way and he's plowing, plowing his own furrow that's for certain Eddie are you surprised about Redden starting? Um, I wouldn't say I'm surprised I, I think he you know we've seen Joe with Leinster swap the halfbacks a lot um, you know he used Isaac Boss and won Redden quite a bit just swapping in and out I think he was always going to use Redden at some point in the, in the, in the autumn um, I think they're two different type of players on Redden and, and um, Conor Murray uh, Connor obviously is a very physical player, a great threat around the fringes. Owen is more for Lincoln. Um, so I just think it may be to do with the game plan and just to keep, you know, the halfbacks uh, rotating. So, I'm, you know, you can always look at it and say, you know, like they, they built the foundation last week, why change it? But I don't think he sees that as an S3 weakness by bringing on Redden. And in fact, he might see that as a strength depending on the game plan he's running. And if it's a case of moving the ball away and attacking, you know, outside the, the fringes and stuff, um, then I think uh, one Redden might be the guy to get the nod on that basis. Is it the beginning of the end for Gordon Darcy at the international level? Am I being a little dramatic, Eddie? No, I think you can read too much into that again. You know, I mean, I think 
Gordon will, will be maybe back even next week for the All Blacks game and, and the Six Nations. But you've got to, like, to be fair to Joe Schmidt here, he's got to start thinking of the World Cup. You know, he's, he's literally less than two years old and he's got to start finding an uh, alternative midfield partnership to Brian O'Driscoll. Uh, for sure, and Gordon Darcy. You know, Gordon may go through to the World Cup, but we need to find another inside centre. And Luke Marshall's been the standout guy, really, I think, uh, from the provinces this year in terms of getting that job done. So I think last week, what he, he looked at with, with the view that we had a young old half and Paddy Jackson, and you wanted uh, two experienced players around him, or three experienced players around him. This week, you've got Jonathan Sexton back, you've Brian on the field. So he's taken a little bit of a punt, putting Marshall in there, who's not as much experience, but you've got two. Uh, experienced campaigners around them, so I think that's all part of the, of the the process of trying to find out more about about guys and and um, you know just a bit of depth into the squad. Yeah, Joe Schmidt, Eddie was making the point after the game last weekend against Samoa that, uh, or I think it was even before that, that he was definitely going to use Gordon Darcy with Paddy Jackson at out half because he wanted a bit of experience outside Jackson. So once yeah. Sexton was going to come back in, maybe it's a logical enough uh, decision. To yeah, well, when I heard that, when I heard him talking about using Gordon to steady the ship around Paddy Jackson. And we knew Jonathan was coming back this week. I thought there was always a chance he'd look at uh, putting a young player in between Sexton and O'Driscoll, which, like, if you're starting a young player in a, in a big test, you couldn't have two more experienced campaigners to stand in each side of him to do that, you know. So it, it's, not a, it's not a total surprise he's done that because if you think for where he is, you're two years out of the World Cup, he's got to start looking for alternatives um, in these positions. And Gordon has been there for years with Brian. And Brian is another... God, he's got to find an alternative. In fact, he's under more pressure with Brian because Brian has gone at the end of the year. We know Gordon could go through to the World Cup and expect he will go through to the World Cup. So, you know, there is pressure in certain positions to, to find the, the, the next man up, you know. But Shane, if Marshall plays well against Australia, if he holds his head above water against New Zealand, is he looking at being the new starting inside centre? I'm not sure. I think it'll certainly go on, you know, it'll certainly go on, on form. And one thing about Gordon Darcy, he's been written off, I don't know how many times, and he always comes back and he always performs as well. So I expect him, he won't roll over, you know, and he'll be looking to, to get back in the side. And Eddie's right there that, you know, there's a longer term uh, strategic thinking here from Joe. I think certainly he's very, he's focused on this match, but he recognises that he has to have players uh, to play 12 and 13. And I think, you know, yes, Marshall could have a claim at that 12 jersey but you know they'll be looking for Darcy at 13 as well so you know I don't think it's the last you see Gordon Dar- Darcy certainly Eddie I just want to we were talking to Matt Williams on Tuesday show I just want to ask you about one of the points he was making and it seems a bit old school although he explained it in, in the context of these Australian players a lot of them growing up uh, in dry conditions for the most part and wanting those kind of conditions. Now, he feels that a wet day will suit Ireland. Now, I did take, take it up and that sounded a bit like something from maybe 1995, but he was adamant that uh, it mightn't affect how Ireland play, but Australia will certainly have a better chance of playing their style of game if it's a dry day. Do you buy into that theory? I think he actually has a point there, to be fair to him, yeah. because I think Ireland, there was a time when Ireland only wanted to rain at times and we, we kind of looked from the big teams and hoping the weather would 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 not work in their favour because we are always a good wet weather team. Um, but we Ireland are capable of being in any weather, whether it's wet or dry, we can play, and that's the way we've been for a while now. Um, but I think in terms of Australia, Matt is right. Australia don't like the rain. You know, they they are more used to the dry conditions. So if it rained on Saturday, it wouldn't discommode us too much, but it might discommode them a lot more. So I think he's right in that fact that that they're not a particularly strong wet weather team. And it's due to the fact that most of them play most of their rugby in, in ideal conditions. 
Um, having said that, I don't think it matters on Saturday whether it rains or whether it, it pours um, or, or whether it shines. It doesn't really matter. I think Ireland still have the firepower to go out and beat Australia. They have to do a lot of things right, but I don't think the weather should be something we're, we're, we're worrying about. We just get out and deliver whatever happens on the day. Shane, is the weather a factor? Yeah, I think it might be because it'll allow us to increase our line speed and, and uh, Australia don't work very well against a fast line speed. It's not something that they're um, necessarily used uh, to come up against and you know if we reflect back to, to the last World Cup they found it very difficult to to um, deal with the line speed that was at that time was, was certainly led by, uh, by Sean O'Brien. I think if you look on to the following week I wouldn't be looking for rain uh, the following week because I think New Zealand um, with the sort of power team that they have and used to having played playing in the, in the in the wet I think that would be a disadvantage uh, disadvantage to Ireland I think the Ireland would want a dry day against New Zealand I don't think they'll mind that much if it's dry against Australia I don't think the, the, they'll think we can't win it if it's a dry day but I think the, they'll maybe have a little bit more of an advantage if, it, if there was a bit of rain uh, at the weekend against Australia Shane we're still trying to I guess learn as much as we can about Joe Schmidt as a coach uh, particularly how he's going to do at international level and having worked under him uh, I understand that he the thirst for knowledge is uh, fairly insatiable with him and it would extend to even post games talking to other coaches that kind of thing yeah and, and like I'll be interested on Eddie's take because very often now you know, coaches don't have that much interaction with each other after games and or with uh, opposing players but you know, it's something I noticed. I noticed after, you know, maybe it, was, it wasn't until maybe the second season with Joe, I noticed he had a lot of background information, sort of inside information on other teams. And I was wondering how he knew it. I knew he had a lot of relationships with, with, with Kiwis that are coaching and playing in, in the different teams. But then I sort of took notice that after a game, he would, you know, spend a, an enormous amount of time with the coach or the assistant coach or someone he knew on the opposition team. And I'm not saying that it was a one-way street. I'm sure he, you know, he gave them some information, but he just seemed to milk <laughs> the opposition coach and the opposition players for any kind of tiny little details about their team, or how they thought they performed themselves, um, what they thought our strengths were, uh, what they thought their strengths were, and then that would be utilised as part of the game plan next time we played them. And you know that was something that I just saw. This guy never stops. It's every tiny little percentage that he's trying to eke out any kind of advantage he's trying to eke out the opposition he takes. And, and he never turns off. I don't know if that's something that was considered and he, he decided that you know this was uh, uh, you know another string to his bow that he could get some information out or if it was organic. I don't know which it was. But it certainly led to getting more information from the opposition. It's interesting, Eddie, because I would have thought that most coaches in those situations would be fairly unwilling to talk tactics or talk too much about the state of their team. I, I think it depends on the personalities, to be fair. Um, you know, there is limited time, certainly after internationals. You, you don't actually see the other coach. Most of the time, you, you meet the, the other coach before the game on the field when the teams are warming up. The coaches are often walking around. You get a chance to have a chat before anything really starts. Um, but that's before the game, so you're not going to exchange more than pleasantries there. And, and you know, it can be quite pleasant, in fact, because both you're in the same place under the same amount of pressure. And there's a kind of a, an irony about meeting the guy that you're, 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 you know, you're battling against in the next hour. But after the game, again, there's limited opportunities between media and so on and so forth. But I mean, you usually meet them at the meal. And if you can get a minute away or two minutes away, it's often good to talk. But that often depends on the coach. And usually a coach as well, if they've lost the game, you know, they're not in the best of form for chatting. But I've, I've built up relations with certain coaches uh, based on, on, I just got on well with them, like uh, Steve Hansen in New Zealand, I'd always a great relationship with him, John Kerwin, I always got on well with Clyde Woodward. 
uh, Ian McGeekin. You know, and you just it's it's about personalities. But yeah, it's a, it's a great opportunity, I and mean, you would have that conversation. You know, like you say, where did you go after us today? You know, what what did you think we were our weaknesses, and and exchange views on that. And and it's interesting to get those feedbacks because there's often something there that you didn't figure out yourself. And and it's an honest an honest opinion like that is is, is worth uh, a thousand video reviews. They know? must be tough conversations when you've lost, though, Eddie. Alex Ferguson in his book said that he had a a, a thought process himself that before he left the dressing room after a defeat. He'd always say to himself, right, get yourself together. Something like that, some sort of G up. And he'd yeah. put on the happy face and he'd go out and he'd, he would try not to let, as he would say, his own club down by being in any way frosty with other managers. Yeah, you have to, you know, I would always always try and, um, you know, go in and congratulate the other team or meet the other manager and congratulate them straight after the game, particularly after you lost and um, wish them well. And certainly, um, I would also be very aware that if, if we'd won the game, uh, that the other manager was was pretty down, as you'd expect. And what you do is you, you wouldn't kind of push yourself on him. You'd just test him out and say he wanted to talk. Because like if he felt like talking, great. And if he didn't, you'd have to respect the fact that the guy is feeling miserable after a loss. But it, you know you, you have to all facts all into the equation. But I think it does come back to friendships and relationships. And you, you do build these behind-the-scenes friendships with guys. And you can have great chats after and over a beer uh, if that opportunity arises. But again, with Everything that goes on around international, you know, getting back to the hotel and changing, coming back to banquets and speeches, and then buses leaving because players are, you know, back getting back to to recover. You don't often get as much time as you'd like, but it is a very interesting dynamic between coaches. and And I think, you know, it's probably one of those dynamics that people forget about that don't even realise they exist. But you certainly end up having better relationships with one, one coach over another and it's just come down to personalities. Yeah, don't tell Joe Schmidt too much, I think might be the lesson <laughs> in this chat. Though. Uh, this might hurt a little bit, lads, but I do want to go back, uh, as promised, 10 years to one of the most famous meetings of Ireland and Australia. Keith Woods and George Gregan, rival skippers, and they get a tumultuous reception from this capacity crowd at Telstra Dame in Melbourne. This has been the hottest ticket of the World Cup so far. It's been almost impossible to get a seat here. And the fans are revelling in the going. And as you can see, it's largely gold, but a very handsome smattering of the emerald green. Ireland still have it. They go left. Kelly. Yes, O'Driscoll. Did he get it down? Yes. I call it yes. to play with, but that's all the person of this calibre needs. The crowd have gone up if he controls it. No doubt. That is try-time Ireland. He hasn't scored a try since 2002. So this was to be his 10th test match without a try, but what a time to do it. Least to be. Ireland surge ahead here. Trailing by four points. Keith Woods. Lovely reverse flick from O'Gara. O'Driscoll drop goal. It's good! One point the difference! Brian O'Driscoll, with a flash of inspiration, has ensured it's going to be a cliffhanger in the last ten minutes. Well, Brian O'Driscoll wasn't the right decision. He's taken three points. Bangara comes off, and Humphrey goes on. Well, interesting decision there. Eddie O'Sullivan putting his star goal kicker on, but only, only behind by a point. Ronan O'Gara, fantastic game. Australia 22 metres out from their own line, their line out, new hooker in Jeremy Paulon, 
crucial throw. He got his first one spot on. Not that one. It's been pinched by O'Callaghan, the like, new boy. Like Justin Harrison. Drop goal! Humphreys, has he done it? Just out to the right. Heavy palpitations in the Australian camp as that one sailed just outside that right-hand upright. It's a simple, it's a simple objective for Australia at the moment. Get it down the other end of the field and keep it down there. I Doesn't think... matter how you do it, just do it. Well, they did it in the end. I think they were a little bit lucky, though, Shane. As far as defeats go, is this one that chips away at you? Little? Yeah, it was a bit of a sickener, and just because there was so much um, potential, if we had have actually won that match, I think we would have gone off and played uh, Scotland. And you know, I think Scotland weren't any great shakes. It was every chance of us being in a World Cup semi-final, and. I think that would be great for that whole group of players because um, we're still just coming off the back of a few players not knowing whether they were good enough uh, and not being used enough to success. And I think that would have served us, served us really well. It was very, very disappointing. I, I thought we played very well that day. I had a bit of a mixed bag. I spent 10 minutes in the bin. Um, and also, I probably I ran out of touch quite closely at the end as well. So, you know, yeah, I had regrets of my own, but I think there was, there was team regrets there as well. Tell us about the yellow card. Yeah, I didn't think I did much wrong. I think he made a bit of a mountain out of a mohill. It was, um, I think Rogers was, was over the top of a ball and, and uh, I cleared it out. I think the crowd had a really big say in it. There was a big roar. Uh, Rogers had given away a penalty and he was getting in the bin for that. And, and I roped over it. You know, I didn't think I left any marks on him. I didn't think it was a big deal. Um, it was a big, big cheer from the crowd. And, and all of a sudden I was in the bin as well. Um, I'm sure Eddie wasn't too happy with me. I wasn't too happy with myself. I bit, felt a bit hard done by. But um, in the meantime, while I was off, Brian O'Driscoll scored a brilliant try. So maybe I should have spent a few <laughs> more minutes in the bin. Was he hard done by, Eddie? Yeah, it was a pretty harsh call, all right. And I remember at the same time, Dennis Hickey, around the same time, went down, he ruptured his Achilles tendon. So same it was a move, wasn't it? Same move. Yeah, yeah, it was the same move. Dennis went down and, and he just ripped his Achilles tendon, just blew it out completely, you know. Um, so it was there was a fair bit of um, uh, covering to be done because we basically lost our, our two outside backs in one fell swoop. But yeah, it was a hard enough call. And I remember Shaggy as well, you know, people might forget, Raj put in a, a beautiful cross kick for you and you gathered it and oh. you were coming down. You hit your elbow. I certainly did not forget it. I certainly yeah. did not Yeah, you hit I your elbow, it. I think, on Wendell Saylor's head and the ball fell out of your arms, you know. And had you not hit his elbow, you had it in your bread basket, you, it would have been a try in the corner, you know. So there was about, and then I remember talking to, to Hums after about the drop goal. And Hums told me, like, he, he was sitting there, he was distraught because he said he would have, when the ball left his foot, he would have put a, his house in it, was going through the sticks. Because he, you know, when a player hits a drop goal, he knows if it left his foot right on the right flight, you know. And Hum said he just could not believe it just fell off to the right in the last half metre as it was heading over. But he said he had put his house in when I left his foot was gone through. So it was one of those games that if anything had gone our way other than what did, we'd have won it. It was a one point game, but you know, they're the margins. Yeah, you you remember that well, Shane, the crossfield key? I do, yeah. And unfortunately, there's a really, really good photograph that comes up every so often when Ireland play Australia. <laughs> and it's me, the ball just, you know, just outside my grasp. And I remember I probably went up a little bit too early uh, because it was against, say, uh, and it was against, uh, it wasn't against... Uh, when it was Joe there, Roth. I was, was just looking at it again. Yeah. It was it against Joe Roth. And I Ruff, went up yeah. because, you know, he was a hero of mine growing up. I absolutely, I just loved playing against him. And uh, I went up, I went up early because he was so good in the air. And I, sort of, uh, I knew I had to get in the air before him. So as I jumped, um, I had got over him. 
and it was um but i just it was coming down i'd mistimed it a little bit and uh as a result we didn't get it, it was probably a catch in, in reflection I, I i probably as i was going up i wasn't even sure if i could make it but um I think, you know, I definitely should have made it. It was a, it's a catch I should have made. So I have regrets. And you have regrets about a few things that went on that game. As I said, I took uh, later, I think, um, um, uh, one of the, I can't remember the player who came on. Maybe it was Wendell Saylor was against. But I went on the outside right near the end. Lottie to carry. Uh, Lottie, it was Lottie, yeah, it was Lottie, and I was, it was so, we were so full of conf- confidence, that team, like, we just, we were buzzing then, and I was really buzzing, it was the first time I, fe- I felt I was really playing well for Ireland, and contributed to the team, and, you know, there wasn't long to go, maybe three, four minutes left, and I took a, a sort of break on the outside and tried to run around Lottie, which, in retrospect, wasn't the smartest of moves, it was maybe, um, confidence uh, was uh, superseding intelligence in that, in that, uh, in that endeavour, but, you know, as a result, they they got the ball and and never you know never gave it back to us. And I, I remember the drop goal as well. And we were you know I was thinking you know should we have not taken on for a few phases, set up and got a little bit closer and, and dropped it over. And that could have been our opportunity. Would have eaten down the clock as well. So I remember the change room afterwards. It was it was it was a place of devastation. And everybody was looking around. And everybody had you know one or two of those little things. They said if we did individually, if we had done. Um, our job a little bit differently uh, we could have won that game and should have won the game and I remember Eddie saying beforehand it was a real uh, you know, call for, to arms for us saying that Australia had already booked their flights they were gone off to the semi-final in uh, I think it was their quarter-finals in Queensland and that I remember just thinking about that going you know, we hadn't made any decisions yet because we didn't know where we were going to be they'd already booked their flights so they were expecting to, to roll us over and it didn't quite happen like that, but you know, as is often the case with with, with uh, Irish teams, uh, it was it was good, but not quite good enough. Yeah, and that complacency may have been reflected in the stadium, Eddie, because I remember I was actually at the game, and the Australian fans were they were you know they were there, they were supporting their team. But as usual, I guess when Ireland are away at big tournaments, the the Irish support was massive. I don't know if that kind of thing actually really permeates the team or the coaching staff, but it was part of a big weekend in in sport in Melbourne, and uh, and I think the Irish sport was particularly good that day. Yeah, I think even before the, the tournament started, we were at um, um, there's a major uh, function in, uh, in Sydney, um, set up by the IRFU, and there were speeches at it, so on and so forth. And all the speakers were talking about, you know, the our pool and how the tough pool it was with Argentina in it, and uh, you know how we both expect to make the the semi-finals. And they'd always kind of make the Freudian slip of saying, uh, you know, after they they would talk, what after beating Scotland in Brisbane. And we we were probably facing um, you know uh, France, France or something, yeah. and and they, they without thinking this was kind of coming out like they had already decided that we were, we were going to win the pool. And I remember um, I think it might have been Hugo McNeil was at the function and Hugo stood up to speak and he said that um, actually he said I just want to point out that, that I think Ireland will beat Australia <laughs> and you'll be playing France and we'll be going to Brisbane. And it was kind of a shock around the room. I remember it, I, I, I had a good chuckle to myself because it was. It was being bandied about like we were just going to show up in the Telstra Dome and, and uh, give them a, a warm-up game. Which is kind of bizarre because Ireland were going into that on an unbelievable run. Was it 18 wins in 20? Yeah, we had a good run. We'd, we'd lost the Grand Slam to England, uh, who went on to win the tournament, uh, the World Cup that year. And then we'd had some, we had dug out some really great wins in the Pacific Islands during that summer. And we'd won uh, all of our warm-up games. So we, were, we weren't, we weren't we you could say, in a bad place, you know. But that was kind of Australia at the time. They're, they're a different animal now, for sure, on, you know. Yeah, they are. Sorry, Karen, you wanted to... No, just, it was interesting, to, Shane, to hear you talking about the devastation in the dressing room. But there was certainly 
a huge element of fearlessness in that team, given that it was such a such a young team that it, you kind of played with a freedom that maybe you didn't have four years later because there was a, 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 so much more pressure on you on, on the team in 2007 compared to 2003. Yeah, well, thanks for bringing up 2007. We'd be here all day. If we about that. You get me, with me on one line and Eddie on the other, we'd be here, be here until 12. But no, I think it was an exciting team to play in. It was, I have to say, that, that team um, and that tour, which was the World Cup, 2003 to Australia was I think my, my favourite time ever playing for Ireland it was it was just so refreshing that there was a very very young team especially the backs they were guys who wanted to try things and it was the first time that we'd actually got hold of professionalism as well like we'd all trained ridiculously hard uh, to get in the shape for that World Cup you know Eddie had picked me off the back of being out for nine months I hadn't played a game in nine months before I played for main in the opening game of the World Cup and that's you know when your coach has that sort of confidence in you and that wasn't just for me he had it in all those young guys and it was if you, if you, if you look right through every single one of those games you know there was the fellas were willing to, to try stuff and it was so good to be in a team like that and there was no con- there was no uh, negative consequences for trying something and, and not working um, but it was certainly for me it was the first time that professionalism had come into to Irish rugby in a big way. Guys were looking after what they ate. There was, you know, they realised that there was all the extras that had to be done. There was, you know, there was there was people were low on body fat. It wasn't just turning up and having a sing song, having a laugh, and you know, getting to hopefully to quarter final. Um, you know, there was a group of guys there who thought they could, they had a really really good team, and we could do something special. And I think the problem was we didn't maybe have a hundred percent of the squad believe that. I think. There was still some, you know, residual left over from the times when Ireland were getting beaten and they didn't compete or you didn't have to train as hard or get in as good a shape or and things just happened. But there was a, a there was a very, very strong group in that, that team that thought that they could do something. And uh, I think, you know, if you reflect on, on four years later, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there, there was, there was the, the added pressure. Maybe guys weren't willing to try as much. And, and also as well, maybe I think for me, the major thing was that, that we overthought it. Like we trained too hard. We were overcooked. And I know, like I can only put my hand up, speak for myself. I certainly was. I wasn't even in reflection. I wasn't even eating enough. You know, I wasn't, I just was, I was so focused that I, I had lost sight of, of what makes you a good rugby player. Yeah. Eddie, we'll let you away without uh, 2007 talk, I think, for this week. But I do want to ask you what you think is going to happen this weekend. You seem confident Ireland are going to do it regardless of the weather. I think they are. But, you know, it's not as simple as they'll beat them. I think they've got to do a lot of things right and they've got to do a lot of things better than last weekend, which they know that themselves. But if you look at Australia, I think they've never been more vulnerable on the basis that they're a team that are not really sure what they're about with the ball. They're absolutely terrible off, off slow balls. So if Ireland can slow down their ball or attack the ruck, uh, could be a starting point. Their set piece, particularly their scrum, is vulnerable. And they're a team shaky on confidence, and they're hanging their hat on a fly half, I think, was vulnerable as well as volatile. There's a lot of things there that Ireland can latch on to that could get them a victory. And, and I feel they will at home. You know, we have a good record against Australia and Dublin. Um, and um, there's no reason not to believe we can't go this weekend and get the job done. But we'll have to get it done. They're not going to roll over and play dead. They never do. Shane, Ireland to win? 
Uh, I do, yeah. I actually think Ireland, I think Australia are a good team for Ireland. Um, I was surprised at some of the stuff that they did last week and they're going to have to iron them out and iron out really fast. They have to lower their penalty count. Um, they have to be a bit more disciplined uh, when they're trying to, to steal rock ball. They went down the uh, blind side a lot or went down the short side a lot uh, last week and it didn't work for them. Uh, you know, and they especially did it off slow ball against uh, a sort of a lazy defence from, um, from Samoa. Now, the defence won't be lazy. They'll get around the corner a bit more, so that might open up the blind side. But if they go down there off slow ball, they'll have no um, they'll have no reward for it. So you know there are a couple of things that they have to eliminate from their game. If they do that, I think the the, the nine and ten uh, pairing is is very interesting, and we're going to see Sean O'Brien go after Cooper in a huge way. And that guy is going to be intimidated. He's going to be pressurised, and that's going to be exciting for both sides because you know. If he does get intimidated and pressurised, he may blow up or he may produce something fantastic and, and make a, a real game out of it. Shane, last point before we let you go. We have got Ken here to chat about the Ireland-Latvia game tomorrow night. It's a big story of the week. Roy Keane did his press conference yesterday. He's a man who you met in uh, the relatively recent past were impressed by. Oh yeah, well it's hard not to be impressed by him, you know. And I'm also I'm just such a fan. I'm just consuming every type of Monkino uh, media I can at the moment, <laughs> like almost everybody else in the country. But yeah, I, I did a, a Volkswagen um, a gig with him. Uh, I don't know, I suppose maybe a little over a year ago, and I just found him so different to the you know the caricature that he is. He's often uh, portrayed as uh, in the media. I find him so intelligent and really aware of his own flaws and prepared to sort of laugh at them. You know, he recognised that he could be, you know, a, a bit of a, another when it came to standards. And like one story that stood out, like, you know, I think it represents the sort of person that he was. He was saying, you know, one of them, I think around the time of one of his major busts in, in, um, in uh, Man U, if not the major bust up that actually led to it his, his uh, departure you know he said he was going mad about all these things that were going wrong and players not performing and he said I think they were 10 points ahead in the league at the time <laughs> you know so he said like everything wasn't wrong you know but he's prepared to reflect on that and you know I thought you know even the way he spoke I thought this guy's actually learned so much from what's gone on in the last you know in the last oh, right throughout his career and he did think that uh he would, uh, you know, he would do a really good job if he if he could um, get back in the management somewhere. But luckily for everybody in Ireland, I think that he, he's back in with, the, with our, our national side. And like he's just, he, he does have that mixture of charisma. And I don't know, I don't know what that charismatic mix is, you know. But it's it's certainly a lot to do with fame, but also you know charm and, and stature and, and authority and. You know, he's, he has them in, in, in abundance, every single one of them. Sounds encouraging. Listen, Shane Horgan, Eddie O'Sullivan, brilliant. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, man. All right, that's, that's good manners. A number of the players have played, but they're still in the squad. I wonder, did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job? No, absolutely not. No, 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 obviously none of their business, you know, what I was going to do. It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> <laughs> and we want to win football matches. There's nothing to tame, you know, some sort of animal, you know what I mean? Um, you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do. He makes me look like Mother Teresa. You know, he's, um, I don't know, we want to win football matches. We've had a lovely few days, the hotel's been lovely, food's been excellent, training ground is lovely, no potholes, uh, we've had footballs, it's been great, bibs, everything, it's been major progress. And we want to win football matches. Uh, I think many people who encountered Keane would say 
the same as Shane, have similar experiences probably, including the unnamed player in Miguel Delaney's story mm. from yesterday's programme. Ken, can you tell us what Miguel told us? Miguel uh, told us a story. He said it might be apocryphal, but, you know, let's tell the story anyway, mm-hmm. where uh, Roy Keane uh, is on holidays, meets another... Uh, na- Premier League I player. Know, former Premier League player, but Premier League player anyway. And um, so, they, you know, they're, they're on holidays. They're, they're free for the evening. They have dinner. They have, they have a good time chatting away, a couple of hours. Uh, and at the end, uh, the player says, well, I mean, do you want to, you know, can I get your number? I'll give you mine. And Keane says, no, let's just leave it there. <laughs> let's just leave it at that. Is, it should be put in a t-shirt. I mean, it's we'll one of the best that, phrases yeah. I've ever heard. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a pretty good story, in fairness. Yeah. And I mean, it may be like apocryphal stories. Maybe it's like a myth. Maybe it's not true, but maybe people feel that it expresses a truth. The truth. Exactly. Yes. I think that's you're right. absolutely passed. right there. That's why it gets passed around. Records are likely to be broken on Friday night, Ken. The record attendance for an Ireland Latvia fixture. Although not necessarily. Didn't we play them in qualifying for 94? Sure, John Aldridge was the scourge of Latvia. Yeah, I think that might have been at that game. Back then, we used to get (laughs) the scourge of (laughs) Latvia. The scourge of Latvia. He really did go on that. Oh, that's a good Because he scored a lot of goals against Latvia. And one of, one of them, I think he scored, maybe it was two in one game or three. The problem... And, and, and Hamilton said that in comedy, the scourge. <laughs> <laughs> the Latvians, you know. The Latvians had had quite a few scourges. You know, there were quite a few people who had treated Latvia quite badly yeah. in the sort of 50 to 80 years before that. Look, but, but you know... John Aldridge deserves up there. A, a spot right Atmosphere there. Atmosphere will be good. The okay, sense of occasion will be... Should be good to watch, Ken. But what will the football be like? Same players, or broadly similar players... We don't know yet what the players are going to be. Maybe Mar- we don't know if Martin O'Neill yet is even going to do the Trapatoni thing of of um, naming his team the day before. But even O'Neill's biggest supporters wouldn't claim that he's an idealist in how he likes to likes football to be played. Wasn't it Brian Clough who said if God wanted football to be played in the air, he'd have put a pitch on the sky, Pass in the sky, something like that? Yeah. I don't think his disciple Martin O'Neill necessarily goes by that. No. I mean, God gave us three dimensions. <laughs> why, you know, why not use them? You know, why, why restrict ourselves to that uh, sort of flat space mm. you know, when, when there's so much more space there to use? It's about space. You know, it's get of, into you space. Know, game you of know? space and movement. The players need to get to into space. And am I looking forward to that? Hugely, yeah. I mean, just to see if there, if there will actually be any difference. I mean, that will, because, uh, you know, is it something that you can see? Maybe, will there be... I suppose there'll be a bit more people there. That yeah. will That will. Be well, let's not forget Steve Staunton's... I'm sure a lot of people are talking about this at the moment. Steve Staunton's first friendly international. 3-0 against Sweden. Liam Miller, was it? Liam Miller. Slam one into the top, the top corner? Yeah, from a long way out. Yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, incredible stuff. So it doesn't necessarily mean much, but it will be... <laughs> Nothing good. that happens on Friday really matters. Well, there's another game on, on Tuesday, you know, and we're going back to Poznan, where, we were, where the last team was buried. The bones of the last team spiritually lie under that that turf in Poznan. The supporters were great, though. Hmm? The supporters were great. Yeah, there won't be... Like, best fan. I'd almost go so far as to call us... It'd be great for Roy to come out... The best fans in the world. Get a post-match interview in Poznan and say how brilliant the Irish fans <laughs> are, have fans been. Are you know? Just kitchen, kitchen after, the after a 2-0 uh, defeat. Two nil defeat. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if people want to go to Poznan, they, Poznan, they, they should go. Really it's, nice city, yeah. It's, and it's pretty cheap, I think, to get out there. Even still, you, could, you fly to Berlin or Warsaw. Maybe it's tricky to get a flight directly there, but fly to Berlin or Warsaw, and then it's like a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour train, which is, which is cheap enough. So, uh, yeah, well, I mean, why not? Time now for U.S. Sports. 
Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. We're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Brian, I hope you're keeping well. I imagine you are keeping well, given that we're going to be talking to you today about maybe your favourite place on planet Earth. <laughs> My favourite place on planet Earth? You mean uh, O'Donoghue's Pub on uh, on Marion Row there on Baggett Street? <laughs> uh, no, no, that's not my favourite place. I used to get yelled at there. That's not my favourite place. I have many favourite places, guys. Uh, Harding Park Golf Course in San Francisco. Um, uh, my favourite burger joint, but I think I know where you're going. Are we talking about the dear old grey lady, the... The much reviled and loathed, yet somewhere deep down inside, loved and treasured Candlestick Park in That's San Francisco. That's what we're talking about, Brian. That is what we're talking about. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, here we are, guys. Uh, I speak to you from the city of San Francisco where, uh, actually, we're licking our wounds. Candlestick was not the site of a pleasant place last Sunday. The 49ers lost a stutter to the Carolina Panthers 10-9, to and we're, we're going through all the um, soul-searching of where we are with Colin Kaepernick and Kaepernicking and... Uh, and losing a game and falling behind Seattle. But, yeah, it's all played out against the the last year of Candlestick Park, opened in 1961, and when the 49ers finish up here in 2013, whenever that will be, we hope it will be a playoff game. But the way it's going, it looks like they might not get any home playoff games if they don't win the West, and Seattle's got a good lead on them. Uh, there's still some chapters left in the season, but uh, it could end as soon as December 23rd, a Monday nighter against Atlanta. And that would be it. They're moving to a new stadium about 45, 50 minutes south of San Francisco in the antiseptic office park of Santa Clara, California, down in Silicon Valley near Google and Yahoo and all that stuff. And uh, it will definitely close a chapter, not just on San Francisco history, but we're, we're closing a chapter sort of on an era in American history, too, guys. Sports history, that is, yeah. In the sense of these grand, old-fashioned sort of stadia, is that it? I mean, the one you're talking about now, I'm sure might be along the lines of the new Dallas Cowboys stadium. But just about every uh, NFL franchise these days has these brand spanking, beautiful new stadiums, state-of-the-art, all the top facilities, but maybe not the most amount of soul. Yeah, that's where we're at. I mean, so, you know, if you kind of trace American sports stadiums, uh, you see kind of a a few lines drawn. Because, you know, when did American sport get popular? Well, baseball, you know, around 1900, you know, American football and like maybe the 1940s and 50s a little earlier in Green Bay and Chicago, 20s and 30s. But uh, you kind of had from 1900 to 1950 or 60 or so, you had old stadiums, the very first stadiums that were built, maybe like the original Lansdowne Road was, you know, kind of not even in consideration of the the uh, the consumer's comfort level or, or vision or uh, eyesight or anything. And, and then we hit the 60s. And that's when we in America definitely went for the – the large multi-purpose stadium. That was the movement, guys, from about 1961 through about the mid-70s, I'd say. And it wasn't just San Francisco. It was also right here in Oakland, Oakland, California, same thing. Uh, San Diego, California, uh, on the West Coast, we're talking about these. Then you get out on the East, there's a slew of them. Uh, the, the old Philadelphia Veterans Stadium, the old 
Pittsburgh, Three Rivers Stadium, the old Cincinnati Riverfront Stadium. These are all stadiums that were built in that era from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, and they were built to house both baseball and football teams, the multi-sport facility. It was the wave of the future. The Houston Astrodome counts as that one, too. That one even had a roof on it. And uh, it was supposed to be, you know, why, what, what more would you want out of a stadium than a place where you could see both your baseball team in the summer and your football team in the fall? And it seemed great for, you know, 15, 20 years, but you know how it is. And I, uh, you guys have done the same to your stadiums over there. Somebody gets restless. Somebody gets an itch. Somebody starts to think there's something better out there. And the wave of football-only stadiums began about the same time, actually, and probably spurred, guys, by the wave of baseball-only stadiums. Baltimore uh, used to have Memorial Stadium where the Colts and Orioles played. Again, concrete bowl, nothing to it, no soul. But then all of a sudden the Orioles built Camden Yards, this gorgeous old baseball park. And so now the Ravens or the Colts, now the Ravens needed a place to play. So they built one. Then you had people building uh, the Giants, build AT&T Park and leave Candlestick Park. Well, the 49ers say, well, why can't we get one? So they built this place down in Santa Clara. So as the 21st century dawns, we're saying goodbye to these old concrete multi-use stadiums. And we're saying hello to these specialty stadiums. Funny thing is, you already start to wonder how long are these going to last before we start itching for something new, right? But in the meantime, that's the movement now. Quaint old baseball-only stadiums and gleaming new technologically savvy football stadiums. You said, Brian, that Candlestick Park is both loved and reviled. Why do some people revile it? Well, where should we start? I I guess we should start with the weather. San Francisco is a cold-weather city. You, You guys know that. This is... By all the Baywatch episodes you've watched with uh, David Hasselhoff and uh, what's her face? Uh, I even forget her name. Pamela Anderson? Star. Thank you. How could I forget Pamela Anderson? My goodness. Uh, in her red uh, swimsuit running along the beach, right? That's Southern California, guys. Northern California is a different climate than Southern California. We get a much colder climate. So San Francisco is a cold-weather city for the most part. In particular, some parts are colder than others, and where they chose to build Candlestick Park on the water in the southern tip of the city happened to be, with the most, the least amount of planning and foresight ever, the windiest, coldest, and foggiest place in the city. So from the moment it opened, everybody said, what the hell is this? We're freezing. And especially, guys, during the summer. Baseball, summertime is our, is, our, is our coldest time. You may know that old Mark Twain quote, uh, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco, because we get particular fog there. Our warm weather time is the fall, like right now, actually. Uh, so it, it was the weather. The weather was awful. It was cold. It was windy, and that made people very unhappy. Two, the access. As people started to realize that sixty to 70,000 people wanted to descend on this place, in cars, we realized how few roads in and out there were. The ingress and egress was awful, leading to horrible traffic jams. Three, the aesthetic. Once somebody started building a better mousetrap and started building prettier stadiums, you started to realize that Candlestick really offered no true aesthetic. Outside of it, there was waterfront, but inside, you didn't see anything. There was really nothing to distinguish it. And then four guys, the amenities that were not put into that place. Once amenities started becoming a thing in stadiums, say in the 1990s, when people started providing uh, cushier luxury suites, more comfortable chairs, more restrooms, better concessions and food and craft beers, Candlestick offered none of that. Uncomfortable seats, 
small, whatever they call luxury boxes, just happen to be little little rooms with, with folding chairs, uh, no concessions to speak of, overcrowded bathrooms, so it's cold, it's miserable, you can't get in, you can't get out, there's nothing to see, <laughs> and once you're in there, there's nothing to do to make you more comfortable, mm. and yet, at the same time, guys, you know how it is, it's like your family member. You know, you all have that family member who you can list 15 things wrong with him, but at the same time, he's your family member, right? Mm. So that's what Candlestick was for us. It's where we all had, all of us of a certain age, from 1960 to 2010, had seminal sports moments there, and you can't ever take those away as ugly as the place is. Mm. Well, it sounds like a total dump, Brian, but nevertheless, <laughs> I'm sh- I am sure that you've had a couple of, you have had a couple of good days in there. I mean, what, what, what was the, can you remember the first time you went out there? I can. I can. I was six years old, going on seven. We used to have this thing called the Junior 49er Minor Club, sponsored by a milk, a milk maker, a dairy company called Berkeley Farms. And they wanted to uh, promote their brand. And by promoting their brand, they reserved about 500 seats for kids. And they would come to your town once a year and give you a free ticket to the game. If you were 10 and under and went to the booster club meeting in your town's local rec center, which I did dutifully at age six, I said 74, I guess I was just about seven and I got my ticket and I think my brother or my dad took me. My memory's a little fuzzy on that, but it was the 49ers and the Cincinnati Bengals. The 49ers were awful. Guys, this is back when it had AstroTurf. Now, that was another thing that was the wave of the future, right? AstroTurf. We don't need real grass. Let's have fake grass, right? Well, it happened to be as hard as concrete with big seams in it and really ugly and caused a lot of knee injuries. So I remember walking in and seeing the AstroTurf. And here's the best part, guys. You go sit in your Berkeley Farms Junior 49er minor section, and lo and behold, the 500 seats they reserved had about 20% vision of the field. I could see about from the goal line to the 20, and that was it. So anything that happened from the 30-yard line on was a rumor. I just kind of had to go on a roar of the crowd and look at the scoreboard on occasion. But, hey, the seat was free. It's still emblazoned in my mind. They played the Cincinnati Bengals, which is kind of an unusual game. They're not division rivals. They're not even in the same conference. But as I recall, the 49ers won 21-3, to or they might have lost 21-3, to and the Bengals had a running back named Booby Clark. I'll never forget that. But from that point on, it became the place I saw the Giants stink forever. And I saw the Giants finally get to the World Series in 1989. I will never forget that warm, sunny day in October of 1989. My sister bought two tickets and brought me. And, I, and Will Clark singled off a of Mitch Williams to send the Giants to the World Series for the first time in my lifetime. And that place roared and roared and roared like no other. I'll never forget that day. Running up and down the stands, hugging strangers, etc. in the parking lot hugging strangers, et cetera. And here's the catch. That was the week before the earthquake. The week, the next week was the A's Giants World Series and the Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants in the World Series and the massive earthquake rattles Candlestick Park. And that, of course, is so legendary in American sports. So that's another incredibly, probably the most historic moment. I was not in the stadium that day, but it was a week after the, the, the highest point I ever experienced there. Any number of great 49ers wins, the 1994 championship when Steve Young finally shook the monkey off his back and beat the Dallas Cowboys and ran around and the whole crowd chanted, Steve, 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 over and over again. <laughs> Something we never thought we'd hear in Joe Montana's town. So that was an incredibly memorable thing, too. Many, many, many losing baseball games, fights in the stands, the smell of marijuana, <laughs> booing the Dodgers. Uh, Tommy Lasorda, the Dodgers manager, used to have a particularly famous relationship the moment he showed his face on the field the booze rained down in fact guys if i had to sum it up i would say that candlestick park had 
the best fans in San Francisco because to go there, you were not going for a social event. You were not going because it was cool or because your company had tickets. To make that trek to that ugly old place and freeze and have traffic problems, you had to love the game. You had to love the Giants baseball or the 49ers football. And I think that's something we've definitely lost, not just in San Francisco, but all around. The sporting event crowd has become more of the social crowd than the sport crowd. And Candlestick represented the old sport crowd. Yeah, Brian, the earthquake in 89, you mentioned it there. It just it seems incredible that the Giants were taking on the Oakland A's, a local rival, at that precise moment and we've talked a bit about it in the past all right there was some incredible footage of it I think when the the, essentially the broadcast was cut off briefly and maybe came back on a little while later and people were worried watching it about their families and all these kind of things when the I'm sure there probably will be a book literally written about the history of Candlestick Park in the next few months do you think that is going to be the the longest chapter? That would have to be. I mean, you know, the 49ers, I I would say that if, if, if you ask any San Franciscan, 52 years of Candlestick Park what are the what is the single most memorable moment? It would it would either be the earthquake number one and the catch number two, or it will be a tie for number one. And the catch, of course, is Dwight Clark's catch, leaping catch of Joe Montana's pass to beat the Dallas Cowboys and send the 49ers to their first ever Super Bowl. That was in Candlestick Park on January 10, 1982. That one caused more joy in the city of San Francisco than any sporting moment ever. And I say that even after the Giants won their World Series. That was the first San Francisco team to win a championship. So that was, I mean, the Golden State Warriors were in Oakland when they won their basketball championship, but that was the first ever moment. So I would say the catch for Dwight Clark is the only thing that can rival the earthquake because the earthquake, guys, becomes such, I mean, you just said it, all these years later, you can't script that, first of all, the A's and Giants were meeting in the World Series. I mean, it's like, I mean, I guess, you know, you guys call them the Darbies over there, like Manchester City meeting Man United like in the Champions League final. You know what I mean? It would be like if they met, and it's like so unlikely. You know, all the teams from Spain and Italy and Germany didn't make it, but Man City and Man U were facing in the Champions League final. And that's the only top-of-my-head analogy I can make, that it was the entire all of baseball, and it happened to be the two teams that are five miles apart from each other and only separated by a Bay Bridge. So it was such an incredible moment for Northern California. It was such a proud moment. What's Northern California known for? Well, we're proud of our climate and our geography and our hopefully our... Everybody thinks of us as a liberal, tolerant area, da-da-da, progressive, uh, tech crowd, all that stuff. Well, what else are we known for? Earthquakes, right? So, I mean, that's the one thing. You talk about 1906 is one of the most famous earthquakes in American history. San Francisco burned to the ground. Well, well, that's always loomed over our area. Well, I'd love to live in San Francisco, but what about the earthquakes? Well, yeah, we all understand. Every day we wake up, the big one could hit. Well, what happens? It's game three of the World Series. The first time Candlestick Park's hosting a World Series it's since 1962, and a flippin' earthquake. It's not just an earthquake, guys, but one of the most devastating earthquakes in the history of California. And so, obviously, tragedy. Many died. Dozens died when a freeway collapsed near the Oakland Bay Bridge. The Bay Bridge uh, uh, top level fell to the lower level. But Candlestick never buckled. That's the amazing thing. You know, there's a, there's a website called Grantland.com that yeah. you guys, I'm sure, have seen. They just about two weeks ago did an incredibly comprehensive oral history of that earthquake. They interviewed, I don't know, 150 people involved. 
And there's a great sports writer here in town. In fact, he's a radio talent on our show, on our station in San Francisco, KBR, Ray Ratto. He's a real, he's famous for always, he's a kind of a curmudgeon. That's his per- personality. And he likes to use colorful language. And he said, you know, when it, when it was all, because Candlestick never, never buckled, never cracked. Everything else around the area burned and cracked and fell. And Candlestick just shook and stayed. And, uh, and, and Ratto had the great phrase in the oral history. He said it was a rotting old whorehouse of a ballpark that basically raised its middle finger to the world on that day. So I thought that was vivid imagery from Ratto, but it described Candlestick to a T. It's even the earthquake couldn't bring it down. And, uh, and it's definitely probably the most memorable moment in the, in the entire run anybody, of the old great lady. Anybody pining for it to remain or are people happy enough to move away yeah. from this place? Oh, oh they are? No. Oh, guys, we are, we, there's kind of that candlestick nostalgia now going. And now the, the Rec and Park of San Francisco have announced they're going to sell off the seats because they are going to tear it down at some point. Boy, that is going to be – there's been a lot of discussion. Will they ever tear it down? If so, how will we react emotionally? Who would detonate it? There's been some joking about who would be the right guy to – to, to, to <laughs> lay down the TNT and, and light the dynamite. Um, but yeah, I actually, guys, to be totally honest, I'm interested in buying two seats from Candlestick. I think they're selling them for like 600 bucks, 600 US dollars. To me, if I could put those in the, you know, the playroom of my house or my children's you know, TV room or whatever and have two old seats from Candlestick sitting there, Hell, watch out, guys. Christmas is coming. I may send one to second captain. <laughs> a, a pair of candlesticks each to you boys. We will <laughs> gratefully accept any gift, Brian, uh, particularly sporting uh, memorabilia. 600 US plus shipping. I might be up a creek a little bit. Yeah, huh? a little bit, I think so. Brilliant as ever, Brian. Listen, thanks a million for talking to us. All the best, guys. I can really identify with what Brian was talking about there as a kid going along to Candlestick Park for the first time and seeing very little of what was going on. What was the phrase used? Anything that happened from the 30-yard line on was a rumour. <laughs> yeah. Because I had a very similar experience in the 1991 Rugby World Cup match between Ireland and Australia, which I was at the, another famous defeat. We were already talking about the 2003 close defeat. This one was, was almost as close in Ireland. Nearly had a wrap the book. I couldn't see a thing, to be honest. And I was in the East Terrace. Remember there used to be terraces below, just small little terraces below the stands? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which have kind of moved on with the march of time. I couldn't see a thing. Didn't know any of the players, really. I suppose I was only 11 years of age. Seemed very exciting, but when the crowd roared, I realised we'd scored a try. The crowd went really silent. Michael Lina had gone over. Oh, well. Well, I mean, I'm sure it's a very interesting... Did I cry, Murph? Did you cry at 11? No, you didn't cry, did you? No, I cried when Meath beat Dublin in 91. Did you? Yeah, because there were a lot of big apish Meath fans shouting in my face. Mm, Probably (laughs) Mark Horgan. What age were they? I mean, they, you would have been about, up. you would have been about eleven. I mean, they, so you're adult men. They seemed about sixty, but they're probably twenty. Right. Yeah. And they were shouting. having a go at you. They, that's my memory of it. I'm sure if these unnamed Meath men were here right now, they'd say we were just shouting ourselves in delight. But I think there was a lot of it turned towards the smallest little dub in the Natty stand. Look at the hairy little fella there. Let's review <laughs> <Yeah>. them. <laughs> ah, come on, Meath fans. I remember, right yeah. there. My uncle's bundling me out of there as quickly as possible because I was looking kind of shaken by <laughs> <laughs> the whole experience. Uh, yeah. Right. Let's finish up with this. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? I got the potatoes yeah. and the puccine. Huh? And the puccine. Oh, yeah, there you are. Bone and bread, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a place called Navin. Oh, and it's your favourite... It's your favourite time of the week, uh, Pierce Brosnan Emerkin. Shout out, Pierce, being an actual werewolf in the room. We're going to have to remove uh, him and continue. Yeah, the well, we should probably handle that. Uh, so yes, it's P. Bezo time, where we read out some correspondence from the poor young people of this country 
forced by cruel misfortune or a desire to live someplace nice to leave Ireland <laughs> and seek Clue August Call on foreign soil. Harry Keogh has been in touch from Madrid, which of course... Harry Keogh? Harry Keogh. Harry Keogh has been in touch. What? Remember it, I'll just edit that. Harry Keogh has Wait, been in touch. Wait, no. Joe, it sounds like... like I, th- I thought he kept saying Keogh. What? It's Can Keogh. Give us one more. Keogh. Yeah. Harry Keogh <laughs> yeah. has been in touch from Madrid, which of course... One is in Spain. Hey, Murph, my brother and I decided to add our own unique twist to hashtag P-Bezzle, introducing the stash tag P-Bezzle. Uh, what Harry and Shane have done here, effectively, is to write hashtag P-Bezzle on their finger and then presume that said finger is a moustache. So that's obviously perfectly sane behaviour, obviously. And uh, it's outside the Estadio Vicente Calderón in Madrid, uh, which is uh, just a short stroll from Shane's digs in Madrid, apparently. The uh, P-Bezzle slot usually means us reading lots of complimentary tweets and emails. But Brian Rooney has been in touch from Huntington Beach, California, and he's not happy. I will start off by saying that I'm a big fan of the show, which is usually a bad Always start. Always a bad sign, don't bother. Therefore, it's with great displeasure that I'm submitting a complaint about the show. But the soccer to other sports ratio has gone out of control. <laughs> I know it's the off-season for Intercounty GA, and perhaps that's the root of my inner anger. But God almighty, there are other sports out there. Darts. Athletics, to name two. Uh, anyway, for this relationship to continue, one of us needs to change. I can no longer resentfully listen to you talking about that soccer shite anymore. Brian Rooney from Dublin, living in Boston, visiting California. <laughs> uh, so we thank you for your message, Brian. And you will notice that this show is 100% soccer free, give or take. Uh, 88% jo- soccer free. Yeah. Uh, Joan Byrne from Tume in County Gola has also reached out. Uh, via the medium of Facebook. Good evening, second captains. My boyfriend Sean is a huge fan of you. We did a round-the-world trip last year, and whenever we were able to get Wi-Fi, the first thing he would download was your old podcast. We're now living in Germany, and he's back to downloading your shows on the Irish Times website. The fact that I know all of this proves how much he talks about you, because to be honest, I probably wouldn't have a clue who you were otherwise. However, he made me watch one of the, your shows at RT, and I have to admit, I am now a fan. <laughs> Uh, so why am I sending this message? Well, it's Sean's birthday in two weeks, and I would get serious brownie points as a girlfriend if I managed to get him a second captain's T-shirt. Yours, a converted fan, Joan. Okay, oh, how many backhanded compliments in that? Well, no, oh, it's I'll tell done. you, I mean, there were backhanded compliments. There were outright insults for the entire duration of that email. Four-handed insults. And uh, I suppose, like, you know, she's from my neck of the woods, so I suppose I, I could send her a T-shirt, but we will have to see a photograph uh, with the hashtag P-Bezzle sign. And, uh, you know what I think, Emmer? Yeah? There is no boyfriend. She's actually a genuine fan of the show. A little bit too nice to and shy to yeah. really ask because she had to put out this kind of persona. Yeah, maybe that's it. And uh, finally, Stefan Wilkins is in Brooklyn. On. Uh, hey, Murph, here's me at the Barclay Centre Brooklyn for the Nets Pacers last Saturday I night. I was there the other week. On Saturday night? Well, I went more past it anyway, the Barclay Centre. There's yeah. a big train station there. Cool story, bro. Uh, Pacers <laughs> are undefeated so far. Moved to New York in the summer. Delighted you guys are back at broadcasting again. When are you doing a show from Manhattan? Plenty of bears here. would love to have you. Every expat knows you guys. Stefan. Well, you know. Oh, do we want to go to, go to Manhattan? Or, yeah, well, okay then. Fine. Stefan, if you want to act as our intermediary out there, get in touch and I will send you an email. Uh, so remember, if you're in Ireland and you want to feature in next week's Bezel, well, I have some advice for you. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! It's louder than usual. Just, just, just remember that. If you want to mention here, you better not be living then here. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! It's slightly less loud. That's Pierce from uh, his brilliant performance in the movie Taffin, of course. I don't need to remind everyone. Usually that. at this point, it wasn't Remington Steel, no? No, no, Taffin. Definitely Taffin. Taffin. Okay. Don't worry about that.
I would usually tell you to wait around for a few hours and listen to Second Captain's Football, which comes out at 6 o'clock on Thursdays, but we put it out a day early. It's already there for you. Yeah, so just straight away, you're finished this. But forget about normal life. Just listen to an hour of Roy Keane from yesterday uh, and enjoy all of that. Murph, if people want to email, have you already given the email address? No, I haven't. It's Let's secondcaptains at irishtimes.com for all of your PBSO and other just general rants and raves. Follow us on Twitter Please at secondcaptains, facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.